All right, I have one. I have one announcement for you this morning before we get going, and that is this: uh, we officially have closed escrow, and we own a piece of land with some old buildings on it. Yep. Now here's the other side of that. You guys don't get to walk through it or see it for 60 days because uh, we gave the other church tents meeting there uh, 60 days to figure out what they're going to do. They may leave earlier than that, and that and that's cool. Um, the pastor right now is trying to figure out what he is going to do in the end of that. So if he ends up moving, what we've offered to do is to allow them to continue to meet there. We would send people over and do the gospel class there and then send over our next series we start in Ruth and let them kind of be there for that, then join us all together when we finally get over there probably about in December or so. But that's kind of what we're looking at, just letting you guys know. Uh, if, if things work out and things happen a little quicker than that, we might even do like a Labor Day barbecue celebration there and put you all to work because... Uh, if you, there's, there's a, there's a piece of property, it's on the corner of Clark and Bethany, if you don't know, it's kind of across the street from Delta High School, Jack in the Box is over here, and, and so we bought that, and we're going to be in there starting next year, because obviously we haven't done anything with our field over here yet, our lease is done at the end of this year, so we're going to go, so if you want to see it, great, but don't like go and be like, hey, our church bought this, can I see, just leave them alone, don't be one of those. Okay, it's all going to be good. It's all going to work out. But it does need some TLC. It, it, we want people to think that people actually, I don't know, what do you say that doesn't sound bad? Live there? <laughs> it looks nice. So we have some stuff we need to do to, to beautify it a bit, and we're going to help and hope and get all of you guys involved in doing that. So you all get something to do. Like You can drive by and be like, I did that. Yeah, that bush that's dead. I planted that one. You know, whatever it is. So it'll be great. Uh, if you are new to Element, welcome to you. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some notes. Go a little bit deeper into what we are talking about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. And you click on More and then Events in Uversion. We'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? You're going to love this verse. This is Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. Let's pray. Yeah. Father, we thank you so much for being a God who is gracious, who is slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love, and that we would be a people who understand that even when we read verses like we're going to tackle today. Uh, We ask that you would teach us to live out in this world the goodness that you have first provided to us so that you would gain great glory and your people would live in in your great joy. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series that's going to take us through the end of the summer. Uh, We're answering questions that you guys have about the Bible or theology or things like that. We're calling it What in the World? Uh, The questions that we have gotten, some have been fun, but most have been pretty heavy and very serious. And so I'm sorry if you feel like we have been overly heavy lately. Not that heavy is a bad thing or that serious is a bad thing. But if you've been here the last three or four weeks, you know what I mean, right? No, okay, apparently it's just me. So uh, I think it's good to laugh. I think it's good to have levity. But some of the topics we cover don't allow for a whole lot of levity because if you crack a joke in the middle of it, people just think that you're mean, like me, and, and mean because everybody's taking it wrong. So, which leads me today to the very lighthearted topic of genocide. 
I know, I know what you're thinking. Thank God we got a break from all the heaviness, <laughs> right? Woo! Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Okay, so where do we begin? Well, uh, I'm going to read you the what in the world question we got. Okay, uh, the one of the, the question you asked was, did God command genocide? And I don't know who asked the question, but apparently that's all that you asked. So I got to interpret some things from the question. Um, maybe you're watching Bill Maher. Uh, maybe you're reading something because this question only comes about in certain Old Testament passages that you look at where God sent his people into, a, into some land and he had them wipe out the inhabitants that they were going in there and to occupy that place. Because if you're not talking about that section of the scriptures, then my simple answer is no, I can pray and we could be done. So I'm assuming you're talking about uh, those things. And so I think a good way to start all of this is to simply step back and talk about who God is and then let that inform us to some other things that we read in the scriptures. Sound fair? Even if you said, no, I'm still going to do it, so whatever. Okay. Uh, sometimes what we do is we take our life experiences and we place those onto God and we assume that God is a certain way. Like, have you ever had, anybody ever had a bad boss? If your boss is sitting next to you, don't raise your hand, right? But have you ever had a bad boss? Right. I, I had this boss at one point that I never knew if he was coming or going. And so he would ask a question and I could answer that same question on different days and get totally different reactions from him. Like on one day I could say something, he'd be like, oh, that's great. I get like a raise. I could say it on another day. He'd be like, you're fired. I know it sounds like our president a little bit, but <laughs> you're fired. But, you know, it's it's that whole it's a whole thing. You don't know if they're coming or if they're going. And, and we kind of put those things onto God because God is someone who is an authority. And when we look at people in authority, we think, well, God must be like people in authority. No, God is not like people around you in authority. I know sometimes God is also not like your spouse, where you don't know if they're coming or if they're going. You, Whatever. Um, we have this preconceived idea of who God is, again, because of how we view things around us. And so people say, you know, if God's out there, what, what is he really like? Is God a bully? Is he bipolar? Is he all love in the New Testament and hate in the Old Testament? Everybody likes to talk about their view of who God is. Uh, from books to cartoonists. Uh, Gary Larson did this one. It's like God got his finger on the smite button, just ready to take somebody out. Uh, and Bruce Almighty in the movie, he doesn't get what he wants, and so he cries out, Smite me, Almighty Smiter! And i got to tell you, if you think God is a bully, or you think God is a smiter, you will never feel close to him in relationship. You will never uh, read parts of the Bible that may, be, that may shake your faith a little bit to help grow you. You will stay away from those things. You will never have a joyful, generous relationship with God that will lead you into a confident life with him. You will never surrender, and you will never feel safe, and you will always be angry at God because you will think that God is always angry at you, and you'll think he's always ready to drop that piano on your head. There is a lot at stake in our view of God and how we see him. And so when the Bible talks about God being angry, because it does talk about God being angry, what does that mean? In Exodus 4.14, it says the Lord's anger burned against Moses. In Numbers 12.9, it says it burned against Israel. Job chapter 4, verse 9 says, By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. There's a lot more verses like that. But what does it actually mean? Because the scriptures seem to contrast God's anger with our anger, because the way human beings get angry seem to be different than how God does. Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. It doesn't say it's wrong to be angry, but it says that anger can lodge there. And you'll just start getting angry at everything around you. Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
And so this disparity between God's anger and our anger is shown in the scriptures. God's anger and our anger typically results in different things. And we cannot attribute how we get angry to how God gets angry. Like when you get angry, science has shown that your muscles clench and your blood pressure begins to rise and your heart rate accelerates and neurotransmitters in your brain actually start to fire differently. Angry for us is something that your body does. Studies have shown that the angrier we get, the more our bodies react and the more it takes over our bodies. It's shown that if you're in an argument with somebody, I don't know, say your spouse, and your things get to a heated level to a certain, certain point, nothing gets solved after the volume hits a certain level. You actually have to step away. And, you, and some of you are like me, who's like, I want to beat the dead horse. I want to keep talking about this. But there's nothing that... Me and one person, great, okay? The rest of you, you're perfect, right? No. When it reaches a certain level, you have to step back. You have to walk away because nothing is going to get better. I mean, you guys ever seen that movie, uh, The Water Boy? The Water Boy, Anna Sandler? Right? The Abdullah Ablangada. And every time he gets angry, he tackles somebody down. If you like comic books, Wolverine has this thing called Berserker Rage. And he goes crazy and, like, kills everybody. Or the Hulk, right? Oh, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry because that's, that's what our anger does. And in the ancient world, what they understood is that when you became really mad, you became, uh, it, rational thought becomes impossible. And so they had all of these gods, right? And they had like these superhuman powers and they looked at their gods as being irrational. You didn't know if they were going to smack you or kill you or what, what they're going to do to you when, when they get mad. But God comes along and he reveals himself in the scriptures to say, this is who I am, that God is not like us. Numbers 23, verse 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The scriptures tell us that God himself, he is perfect. God does not sin like us and God is also a spirit. And what that means is God cannot get angry in the same way that we do. God doesn't melt down. God's pulse doesn't race. His blood pressure doesn't rise. John Ortberg once said that in reality, God doesn't have a brain, which then he quotes Dallas Willard, who says, every decision God makes is a no-brainer. Yeah, right? Humanly speaking, if anger is a bodily experience, that means it wouldn't be that way with God. It's not the same way as it is with us. One of the main Hebrew words for anger in the Old Testament is this word called af. It's, we translated it A-P-H. And it literally means nose. It's like a flaring of the nostrils. Try that right now. I don't know if I can do it. Am I doing it? Right. That's, that's, what, that's what happens when you get mad. Like your nostrils flare. That's what it refers to. Proverbs 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Slow to anger literally means long-nosed. And if you are planning to get married sometime in the future, marry somebody with a long nose. Be like, pull out your ruler and be like, let's see. Nope, not you, sorry. Long nose. In the Bible, God is called slow to anger. It is so central to who he is, it's actually part of his name. In Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The phrase slow to anger is used of God seven times in the Old Testament to describe him, and it always paired with this abounding and steadfast love. That is who God is. 
God is not mean. God is not irritable. God does not fly off the handle. It is important for us to remember when we read passages in the Bible that we don't understand to look it through the lens of who God is first and to realize that when we read passages in the Bible, they were written by intelligent people, not country bumpkins. They were written by people who are at least as intelligent as we are. Sometimes that's not saying much, but as at least as intelligent as we are. And they believed that God was merciful and consistent. We're going to come back to this thought at the end to kind of bring this together, but the character of God needs to be fresh in our mind to what we're going to talk about. So many atheists today like to point out questions and ask things about passages in the Old Testament where God seems to get angry and says to commit genocide. As an example, philosopher Raymond Bailey, who is an atheist, he asserts that Christians are in what he calls a logical quandary. That if we want to believe that God is all-powerful and yet all-good, those things can't go together. He cites what is called the crucial moral principle. You're not going to remember that later, I know, but the crucial moral principle. And this is what he says. It is morally wrong to deliberately and mercilessly slaughter men, women, and children who are innocent of any serious wrongdoing. Now, rather than get into the comedy of an atheist trying to have a moral principle higher than himself or to talk about you know, what deliberately or seriously wrongdoing actually means, what we, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in God, you actually do have a higher moral standard. So we have to answer a question like that, even if Raymond Bailey doesn't have to answer it for himself. We do, because Jesus is our Lord. So how do we do with that? So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20, if you are a believer in Jesus, that means that we believe the scriptures are God's word to us. They are inspired, they are inerrant in their original manuscripts, but the biblical texts were also written to people in a particular space and a particular time. It is why we say that the Bible is written for us, but it's not always written exactly to us. It's why we understand concepts and cultures in the scriptures. It makes more sense. Like the creation narrative in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 1, it's poetry. Genesis 2 becomes narrative. Genesis 3 is the fall. And they all go together to help us understand that in the end, God made everything. When you get to the Ten Commandments, you'll see if you look at Near Eastern customs, they're written just like a Near Eastern marriage document at the time. And so God is making a covenant of marriage with his people. And today I'm not going to be be able to answer all the questions that are probably going to come up about things in the Old Testament like that. But I want to refer you to a couple books that could help. I'm going to put them right up here as we start. The first one is by a guy named Neil Pantiga. He wrote a book called Warranted Christian Beliefs. It's a pretty easy book to get through. It's very good. I recommend it. Uh, William Lane Craig writes writes a lot of books about this stuff. Uh, The other guy is a guy named Paul Copen. He wrote two books. One is called Is God a Moral Monster? And Did God Really Command Genocide? They're very scholarly. They're very thick. They're very hard to get through. You may read five pages and put it down. So I'd actually recommend Warrant of Christian Beliefs or something by William Lane Craig. But if you're really a go-getter, you like reading the book of Leviticus for fun, Paul Copen. Go go with him. Okay, Uh, so we're going to start Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting in verse 16. Here we go. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destructions. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. A lot of ites, I know, because they are the, also the Israelites. And the Lord your God, so the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. In the book of Joshua, when the people actually get into the promised land, God will essentially repeat this throughout Joshua chapter 6 through 12. And so what I want to do is just step through a few things about God's opposing us telling his people to commit genocide. So, first off, number one. 
the Bible does not command us to kill innocent human beings. It does not command us to do that. And what I mean by that is even if God said this, it, and this is debatable when we'll talk about when we get there, but even if God commanded the Israelites to do this, it does not mean that he commands us to do this today. Not all commands in the Bible are meant for everybody to carry out. As an example, Abraham is living in this place called Ur of the Chaldeans, and God says, leave this place. You do not live in Ur of the Chaldeans, so you do not have to leave that place place. All right. All right. He commanded Jonah to go to a place called Nineveh. God does not command all of us to go to a place called Nineveh. It'd be dumb to think that when God says some of these things, he's actually talking to you. There are other commands in the Bible that if we read them, we realize they are for us. And most people are smart enough to figure this out. I know you see the crazies on Christian TV, maybe not them, but most of us are smart enough to figure out how this stuff is supposed to work. Marriage is meant to be one man, one woman, one lifetime. It's spoken in Genesis by Moses and by Jesus in the Gospels and by the Apostle Paul. We are told to love our neighbor in numerous places. We're told to honor God in numerous places. We understand those are for all people for all time. But things like God commanding Moses to strike a rock to get water out of it or Noah's command to build a boat, even though you may really want a boat, it doesn't mean it's actually given to you. If you're in your backyard smacking rocks with a stick and you're not getting water, don't be frustrated because it wasn't written to you. Following? All right, because we're smart. Got it. Okay. Secondly, even if it did happen, it wasn't really true genocide. Now, yes, God had the Israelites kill those in the land of Canaan, but it was only genocide in the sense that it was planned and systematic. It was also, though, limited to a number of nation states in a really small area of the Middle East. The war that the Israelites carried out was focused, but it wasn't just focused on a particular race or religion or something like that. It was not thinking that everybody of this ethnicity must die. Genocide comes from this Greek word called genos, which is a reference to this ethnic group of some sort. The Israelites were not commanded to pursue and kill the Canaanites past their borders. They weren't said, oh, find everybody like that and get rid of them. That is not what God ever said. The Israelites were simply to drive out and dispossess the nations in their own land, making war against those who resisted that dispossession, who didn't want to leave and wanted to stay and fight. They were not instructed to annihilate a particular race or ethnic group from the face of the earth. Thirdly, the Bible does not portray the Canaanites as innocent. Remember, Raymond Bailey says it's morally wrong to deliberately and mercilessly slaughter men, women, and children who are innocent of any serious wrongdoing. The Canaanite nations were actually punished because of their extreme wickedness. God did not cast out the Canaanites from the promised land just because they were a particular ethnic group. God did not send the Israelites into the land of Canaan to destroy a bunch of righteous nations. On the contrary, the Canaanite nations were horribly depraved. In Leviticus 18, it tells you that they practiced abominable customs. In Deuteronomy 18, they did detestable things. They practiced idolatry and witchcraft and necromancy. Uh, the, and Moses writes in Deuteronomy 12 that the inhabitants of Canaan would even burn their sons and daughters in the fires to their gods. Robert Unger wrote this. He said, their deities had no moral character, whatever, which brought about the worst traits in their devotees and entailed many of the most demoralizing practices of the time. The Canaanites were thoroughly corrupt in what they did. They would influence all the cultures around them. They were so bad that God even said the land itself became defiled because of what they did. And Leviticus 18 verse 25 says the land is going to vomit out those inhabitants. Number four, the Canaanites were occupying land that Israel had legal ownership to. 
It's also very important. They occupy it without the consent of the owner. I know we live in California. It's very difficult because you get a renter in a place and they don't want to leave. It's like five years later and your house is burnt to the ground before they ever leave because there's no house left. But it's California. I get it. It's just, it's, God doesn't like squatters. That's all I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. This doesn't mean that if you have a renter in your house, right, that won't leave, that you can go all Pulp Fiction on him or something like that. Okay. It doesn't mean that. You know. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it does. No, it doesn't. Uh, but the text in the Old Testament claimed that genocide it was only it was only limited to a certain group of people in this land that God gave Israel. God actually prohibited Israel from conquering neighboring lands like Moab and Ammon and Edom because in Deuteronomy four and nine and nineteen and twenty three, God says they have legal titles to those lands. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter fifteen. Genesis 15. Despite Israel having this legal title to the land that God is giving it to them, the Israelites are not allowed to take ownership until God deemed the time appropriate. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 13, God is talking to a guy named Abram who becomes Abraham, who is uh, the patriarch of the Jewish and Christian faith. says, uh, just 15, 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." So God tells the Israelites, you are going to go into slavery for 400 years, but I will bring you out and take you into the land that I promised you. The nation of Israel will actually be oppressed and enslaved. They will become refugees because of God's kindness to the Canaanites, because of his kindness to the Amorites that were in that land. It wasn't just that the Israelites had legal title. It was only after certain immoral practices of that culture got so bad, so culturally entrenched for centuries, that Israel was permitted to then drive them out. We would be a people who were saying, God, why are you taking so long to take care of this like we do today? Why are you letting that thing go on so long? Why don't you do something about this? Because God is patient and God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love. Well, Psalm 145, verse 8, God is slow to anger and great in mercy. You go all the way back to Noah's day and the flood in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And yet God still delays the flood for another 120 years as Second Peter tells you that Noah became a preacher of righteousness. Three, four weeks ago, we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Abraham, where God ultimately said, I will spare the city if you can find not 50, but just 10 righteous people there. God did not quickly decide to cast out the Canaanites. God is not impulsive. God is not reckless. He is patient, slow to anger, long-suffering. He waited more than four centuries before he brought judgment upon the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. What's also interesting is that later, God will actually bring in the Babylonians and the Assyrians to discipline and punish his own people for becoming almost as wicked as the Canaanites. In Leviticus 18.28, it tells the Israelites, if you do what they did, the land will also vomit you out as well. So it's not that the Israelites are the good guys and the Canaanites are the evil ones. It's that God is going to bring about his good in his time, in his way. That's what God does. Fifthly, 
devote them to complete destruction. Those are the words. Mean driving them out does not necessarily mean annihilation. And this could be the most controversial one. But a lot of scholars today who want to make God into this evil thing, it's because they really don't want someone in authority over them. They don't want there to be a God that actually rules over all of creation. The idea of driving them out in the Hebrew shows to be a process, like the land is vomiting them out. You ever vomit? It's a process, right? It's like, ooh, it's not one and done. It's like, ooh, ooh, and think, ooh, I think it's over, ooh, and there it comes again, right? It's a process. It's a process. Deuteronomy 19, verse 1 says, When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God has given you, and you dispossess them, this is the idea of casting them out. Casting them out. Dispossessed tells you that most of the population actually left. They ran away. The ones who stayed were the ones devoted to destruction, the ones that wanted to fight. And the narrative, it talks about how Israel taking the land and dispossessing people. The word dispossess outnumbers destruction three to one. And that's very important. Devote to complete destruction was actually a hyperbolic way in that of the day to describe war and dispossessing people, not always genocide. There are actually lots of Near Eastern accounts in this time that read and sound just like this biblical account. And, and the one that happens also in Joshua. They, they have found Hittite texts and Akkadian texts and Egyptian texts that all use this same wording to drive people out, to dispossess them before you. When you read the book of Joshua, it comes right after the Torah. It's before the book of Judges. And in Joshua 6-11, it's, it starts to summarize all of these battles. And it concludes with this. Uh, Joshua 11-23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. It's like, oh, nice. They must have killed everybody, right? Judges chapter 1 verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon and his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. Well, but I thought in Joshua it just said they were all gone. And here it says they're not all gone. So what's, what's going on? This is not meant to be a contradiction. This is how Near Eastern campaigns were written. Joshua 10 and 11 says all the Canaanites were exterminated in the land, yet Judges affirms no less than eight times that they didn't run them all out, that they didn't exterminate all of them. Joshua and Judges sit side by side in the biblical order. And you cannot assume that the biblical writers were stupid and didn't notice this. Like when I'm trying to find the milk in the fridge and I have to go, Marianne, where's the milk? It's right in front of you. Oh, there it is. Right? You can't assume that's, that's what's happening. There is something more going on. This is how a lot of these cultures wrote and accounted for things, understanding the nuances of the day. When you get to Judges chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you really begin to see God's command and what he had in mind and how the Israelites carried it out and also how they failed to carry it out. Uh, Judges uh, 2, 1 and 2 says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant. And they would have understood this at this time as treaty with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. See, some of the best scholars today will point out many of these words and phrases that we don't understand are part of this Near Eastern War rhetoric. It's how they wrote. It's how people would understand it. People in this day would read this and understand exactly what was being said. We went, we fought, God gave the day into our hands. Yes, we exterminated them all. And then you get, oh, but we didn't really do it. So get in there and do it and take care of these things. And, and you have to see how we understand it today is not how they 
would read it. There's a whole difference in nuance of how they wrote and how they portrayed things in the scriptures. Now, does that mean that people weren't killed and there weren't bloody horrible wars? Of course not. But it does mean that when people talk about the idea of genocide in the Old Testament, it's not really what we think. Were some children probably killed or devoted to destruction in the conquest? Most likely, most likely. People say, but the children of Canaan, they were not guilty like their parents and with their parents' sins, so how could God bring this about on the lives of those children? And guys, I don't have a full answer of that. I don't. I don't. But I do know that God is good. And I do know that God has long-suffering patience. And I think that we can trust him enough to know that he holds life and death in his hands. Dave Miller noted this. He said, including the children in the destruction of such populations actually spared them from a worse condition, that of being reared to be as wicked as their parents and thus face eternal punishment. He notes that what we know of God is that God cares for children. God cares about innocence. He would draw them to his side, which many times would be a far better fate than actually being a Canaanite. He says, children who have parents who are evil must naturally suffer innocently while on the earth. And this could be a way to spare them of that. I mean, I do think personally, in the end, that God spared these children to fate much worse than physical death. The horror of growing up in a reprehensible culture and becoming just like their parents. And if you were here on Good Friday, I talked a lot about death and what death means to God and how it looks on the other side. Because when we look at death, we think death is the worst possible outcome that could ever take place. From our perspective, when we see death, and if God's involved in that, we think of this awful, terrible punishment because we don't know what's on the other side of it. We look at death and we say, oh, well, death is just the worst. Like for one person to inflict death on another, thou shalt not kill. We usually see that as the ultimate act of aggression and thinking, I wish you did not exist. But death to God does not mean I wish you did not exist. For God, it simply becomes a relocation. It can even become a homecoming, even for these children. And if you read through these Old Testament stories you, and you believe that God is truly, by nature, loving and long-suffering, abounding in love, then He does in life and in death what is the absolute best that can be done by any human being. That is who our God is. And that is why when Jesus comes, He is God personified in the flesh. All that we look at in all these biblical texts will only make sense if we first understand who God is first, and then look at these texts through that lens. Really, is God a loving God or is he an angry God? In truth, God can be both of those things. He can be both those things at the same time because he does it perfectly. And this whole idea that God is a loving God, and people say, oh, I believe in the God's God of love. I can't believe in Old Testament stories like that. It's so contradictory because the idea that God is a loving God or God could be a loving God actually only comes from God himself. That's where it comes from. A loving God was not something that the Canaanites and the Amorites thought of when they thought of their gods. Baal and Molech were not loving gods. All of these gods were angry, evil, vindictive things. Where does the idea that God is a God of love come from? God himself. That's where it comes from. It comes from this little country called Israel that went into this region and ran these people out. It comes from them and spreads to the entire world. When Jesus comes, now it's supposed to spread through us Well. Sometimes people will say, you know, I like the God of love that Jesus described, not that God of the Old Testament. You know who would never say that? I'll tell you who would never say that. Jesus would never say that, okay? He'll say, you know, you know where Jesus taught about God from? The Old Testament. That's where he taught about God from. Where it says the first commandment is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Because anything else in our lives becomes moral insanity. The best thing I can tell you today about what we talk about and this anger and all these things is that when we don't understand the scriptures, we must understand who God is first. 
when you come to something you just don't get, understand who God is first. You know the Israelites love this command to love God first and most because it said God wants to be loved. Not because there's a deficiency in his character where he needs it, but because it's what he himself does. God himself loves. We are told that we love because he first loved us. It comes to us from him to us first. God wants to love you. This is why Jesus came to rescue, save, redeem, to love us and bring us back home. And I don't know who asked the question, but if you asked the question, I hope that answered it well enough for you. If not, come and talk to me later, and I'll take you in the high grass and leave you there or something like that. But, but hopefully that, that, that helps you guys a little bit in that. Whenever you come to something you don't understand, understand who God is first, who he is first. And then start to look through things through that lens. Because God is gracious and good. You know how we know God is gracious and good? That's why we remember communion every single week here. Because you break that cracker because Christ's body was broken for you. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Why? Because he came and he died for us, so we did not have to. He gives his righteousness to us as a gift, because he is simply that good. And when we look at the scriptures, we must see them through the lens of understanding who Jesus is when we look back through all of these things. Yes, sometimes God brings judgment. Okay? God is sovereign, and he holds all judgment in his hands, but we've got to trust he knows how to do it and do it correctly and do it rightly. We trust things in his hands because he is simply good. God has called us to be a people who come home to him and live in ways that bring him great glory and him great honor. And so today, if you're somebody who is just angry all of the time, well, take communion. Remember who he is first and have that begin to determine how you live and how you see the world around you. That our God is gracious and good, first and foremost above all things. He is long-suffering. Our God has a long nose. I want to see what that looks like, but, you know, it would be kind of cool. The band's going to come up. As they do, if I take communion, there'll be some deacons in the back. If you need prayer, like I said, maybe if you today uh, walk around and you're angry a lot, uh, they would love to pray with you about that. Uh, if you still have questions about God's anger and God's great love for you, they would love to talk to you about that. If anything going on in your life right now, actually, they'd love to pray with you about that. But if something today kind of sparks something in you and you want some prayer, they'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, there's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of that worship. Uh, we don't pass a plate or anything like that. We want it to be a response to what God is doing in us. So you actually have to get up and do it, just like communion or prayer. Uh, there's some food in the back. I don't know if there's still donuts back there, uh, but first service, there's a ton of donuts. And what was really cool is they didn't cut them into little pieces. They were like whole donuts. My, my wife said, uh, when she was at work last week, she had this meme that says, you know how women work in a place because they cut all the donuts into little pieces and then they eat them all anyway. <laughs> I'm eating less. Yeah, I don't know, but anyway, so uh, there, there's donuts in the back. Uh, grab something to eat, maybe, you know, meet some other people uh, and, and meet this week and talk through some of these things. Now, w- when do you view God being angry at you? How does your anger and God's anger not mesh up? You know, what things make you angry versus what things make God angry? And kind of talk about these things. And then, and then be able to step forward in that and help one another to remember that God is slow to anger. That God is a God of mercy and He is a God of grace. And what He did in the entire course of history was make sure that we could be redeemed, that we could be brought back into relationship with Him again, that we do not have to die because He is the one who died for us, for our sin, to bring us home again. So this is what we remember. This is the God that we love and worship and glorify, the one who has rescued and saved and brought us back home because He is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means 
to trust you and the words of the scriptures that you have provided to us. I ask that you would move us to a place where we would see our anger in ways that makes sense only in the light of the long-suffering that you call us to. That we would understand that, that to be angry isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it's how we act out in our anger that can become bad. Because sometimes we can act out in ways that are actually very good, that spur us towards righteousness and speaking of hope and confronting lies with truth. So teach us to be a people who love you in ways that lift you up above our own feelings and that you would reset our minds to understand the gospel of the goodness of you rescuing and saving us. And we would live out that calling in all of our lives that you would be lifted up because you are simply great and good and all glory belongs to you. And that we would live in honor of who you are and all that we do. Teach us to truly live as your people in this world. That we would be a people of steadfast love and patience and mercy. Properly using everything that comes into our lives in ways that glorify you. And speaks of you to this world. So that all would know how good you are. Just to live in your extravagant love and grace for us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.